Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I am Greta Johnson. Nerdette is a show where we talk to people about their obsessions. People who are scientists and poets, astronauts and adventurers. People who dare to ask big questions and explore the unknown. Our guest this week has built much of her life's work getting us to think about the lives of those around us. I think of my plays as a series of portraits or, in the case of this one, of a big tapestry where I'm looking as much for different colors as I am for opinions and facts. Anna DeVere Smith. She is, I think, in my top three all-time favorite <laughs> storytellers, That's artists. Awesome. I don't want to have to choose really like the top one. Right. But it's she, a tier. <laughs> best friend is not a person. It's a tier, as Mindy Kaling <laughs> would say. And Anna DeVere Smith is, for me, I think, one of the most interesting storytellers alive, one of the most interesting storytellers working. She's also famous and beloved by me and many as Nancy McNally on The West Wing, where she's an actress. But as a playwright, she actually does something even more unique. She's one of the most prolific writers of documentary-style theater, and her scripts are based on verbatim interviews she conducts with real people. Totally. Anna has made about 20 plays in this documentary style. Her most recent one is called Notes from the Field, and it's on HBO now. And to make it, Anna DeVere Smith interviewed 250 different people, all of whom have been affected in different ways by the criminal justice system. And then the way Anna's process works is she takes all those interviews and distills them down into a one-woman play. So she picked 18 different characters to transform herself into over the course of an evening of theater. And she really does transform and disappear into these different characters. She plays the president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. It is impossible to talk about the criminal justice system, mass incarceration, without talking about education. A school counselor from a South Carolina high school. You know, most people, most people get incarcerated because of their mouth. What they say when they approach by authority figures. The pastor who eulogized Freddie Gray, a young Baltimore man who was killed by police in 2015. But I came to tell this grandmother, I came to tell the aunt, I came to tell Freddie Sr., I came to tell Freddie's five sisters don't cry. And the reason why I want you not to cry is because Freddie's death is not in vain. After this day, we're going to keep on marching. After this day, we're going to keep demanding justice. After this day, we're going to keep exposing a culture of corruption. After this day, we're going to keep monitoring our own neighborhood. Whatever you do, don't cry. (laughs) 
She plays dozens of other educators and inmates, all sorts of folks who have had real-life experiences with the school-to-prison pipeline. Trisha, can you explain what the school-to-prison pipeline is? So this is the simple but pervasive idea that in our public school system, often in communities of color, often in low-income communities, young people are being taken from what would normally maybe have been or others would assume would be a in-school suspension kind of situation and police are being brought in. And so now you have a young person who got in trouble for having a cell phone in class and somehow it has quickly escalated to that kid in juvie. And once that kid's in juvie, now they're in this prison pipeline. It's affecting their life, the life of their family, and it's happening all across America where we have young people who, in the setting of their education, are being taken from their classroom and taken into the criminal justice system. Trisha, your mom is a teacher. Your brother is a school administrator. Is this a conversation that you guys have had at the dinner table? Absolutely. The idea that young people are there to learn and it's the job of the school to keep all kids safe. It's the job of the school to keep all kids in a moment where they can be learning. This is complicated stuff, but it's definitely something that if you know a teacher, if you know a vice principal, if you know a parent, you may be having these conversations around your dinner table. I think they're conversations we should all be having more. And Anna Devere Smith has made this this exquisite piece of art, Notes from the Field, to really spark that conversation. Did you hear about the rose that grew from a crack in the concrete? My overall objective in my adult life is to be has been to become America word for word. So I've been going around America with the tape recorder for a couple decades now. I've been looking at what you could call American problems for a long time. We could, I guess we could call them American opportunities as well. And using this technique of learning what I can, really not just from what people tell me, but how they tell me about the world in which they live. When you say how they tell me, what do you mean? What are you looking for in these conversations? It's not just a person who can give me facts or give me presumed truths. It's a person who has a very unique way of talking and speaking. And so the simple way to put it is I'm looking for a person to change their uh, vocal and speech patterns in the course of the hour that I talk to them. And I really believe that it's very different than if I were going to quote somebody in a newspaper article um, or, or even very, very different than maybe if I were making a documentary film and I were going to use that person speaking. What I have to do is to take that language and breathe life and emotion into it. So it doesn't even mean necessarily that if a person breaks down crying or or laughs, it's not even that. It's that I believe that if the rhythm of what they're saying has enough uh, space in it, then then I can really breathe the kind of human breath and life that I need in it when I'm on stage. The video came on the news and everybody, everybody in the jail was like, what? Everybody. Everybody was like, what? He threw that little girl like that. What? He threw that little girl like that and you was in there? Oh, girl, you going home. You going home. As soon as I saw that video, I was like, oh, I know my mom saw it. I know she saw it. As soon as I saw that video, I was like, I'm not in trouble anymore. I'm not in trouble. And so I called my mom and my mom was like, Naya, you don't even know. The news is out here. They want to interview you. Good morning. America's coming to the house tonight. But I don't know what it is. You know, I guess I just snap when I see people being mistreated, I guess. 
And also, since I'm doing 18 people, or in the case of uh, Twilight Los Angeles, at one point, that was 43 people that you and the audience will believe that I've actually changed to be somebody else and not the person I just did. In Notes from the Field, we see a lot of reflections from people about some of the things that really made it into the public consciousness when it comes to young people being mistreated by police, either out in public or within their schools. And a lot of the video, which we may have seen along the way, is even more, I think, haunting to watch in this theatrical setting. And then at the end of most of them, you're flashing a title card that just lets folks know what, if anything, happened to the individual actors involved, particularly if it's a police officer, whether they've been put on leave, whether they still have their job. And that moment of inserting that for the audience, but not speaking to it within the course of the piece, I found really interesting because, of course, as a viewer, I'm curious, but it's not really the point of the piece, is it? Any one of these instances isn't really what you're driving at. Right. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. That's kind of another play. The story of the police officers who time and time again um, have walked, let's say, literally gone without serving any time for acts that look very brutal. After they didn't tase Joe like that, you wonder why he can't use his legs. They are a part of the story, but they don't really push this particular assemblage of uh, ideas forward. You know, what I'm really looking to do is to raise consciousness in particular about the school-to-prison pipeline. So I would say the fact of what happened to those officers is, as you say, a kind of a— It's a sidelight and a very disappointing one. However, having said that, I do think that the theater is different from journalism and movies are different from journalism and different different from policy reports and, and different from trials. I may not explore that any further, the fact that these um, police officers didn't seem to get punished in any significant way. You as an audience member do feel something about that. And you take whatever that feeling is into how you look at the next individual that's being portrayed. And in the end, a work like a, a, you know, a, a piece of theater or a film or even some music is about accruing feelings. It's an accretion of feelings that leave you at the end feeling one way or another. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a really interesting way of thinking about the building of that narrative also and the way that you set the stakes at the beginning and talk about the fact that policy can often feel like the driest, most boring thing to talk about in media or in any conversation. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, why you think using individuals in their own words maybe helps bridge that gap between the personal and the public trauma. Hmm. Isn't that, that's a really wonderful question, which means I don't know the answer offhand. I mean, somehow, uh, as you were talking, it did sort of, um, you know, I'm thinking, wow, I'm talking to somebody from Chicago, and a a journalist who had a huge effect on me was Studs Terkel, who was a very famous, as you know, Chicago 
radio man. Who you do an excellent impression of. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody out here old enough to know Studs Terkel? That old radio man? So uh, I thought he would be the perfect person to go to to ask about a defining moment in American history. You know, he was born in 1912, the year the Titanic sank, greatest ship ever built, hits the tip of an iceberg, and bam, it went down. It went down, and I came up. Wow, some century. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think of Studs as a person whose media uh, is not just the radio, but, you know, stories, getting somewhere by telling stories. And in my case, that's what I'm doing. And the stories aren't meant to have a direct answer. They're kind of parabolic in that way. And I think that these human stories, these human witnesses leave room for you as the other human, the other viewer who may or may not be a policymaker to understand on some level that you too have a story and you too have a truth and that I'm weaving together a variety of truths. And if I've worked well without seeming to have passed too much judgment, that it also could make you feel as though you maybe move an inch to the side of where you thought you understood what you believed. You know, politics and the law both tend to be packaged in a black and white way. And of course, they're not, right? So very successful politicians have to spend a lot of time with people who teach them how to spin, how to stay on message. Well, my play and my movie are not on message in that way. You know, I want the um, listener and the viewer to experience some of that messiness, hoping that I'm giving them the room to either understand better what they think or to revise what they think a little bit. When I'm not on message, you know. <laughs> well, but you're, you're knitting together. It feels like you're trying to knit together this bigger truth that we keep talking about, that, that a piece of art can reach for that an individual newspaper story or policy white paper might not be able to. Well, I think most of us in the arts have just a whole different way of approaching the world. And, you know, we're we're living in metaphors. We know what we're doing is not real. I think of my plays as a series of portraits or, in the case of this one, of a big tapestry where I'm looking as much for different colors as I am for opinions and facts. Because unlike, say, my play about the Los Angeles riots, Twilight Los Angeles, there is no real story here. You use the word narrative. It's weaving together all these different um, strains to make this, I hope, rich fabric that engages, that I keep, I'm able to keep the attention of the audience long enough, again, that they have some type of an adjustment in the way that they think. And in real success, they they are engrossed in this fabric well enough that they actually want to do something about the school-to-prison pipeline, which is, you know, different than I think a traditional entertainment. And in fact, um, in a variety of the places where I perform the play, I am the musician who's on stage with me, Marcus Shelby, stopped the play in the middle and said, look, you know, this is far as this is what we can do. 
you know, he says, I can play the bass, you know, I can learn lines. So actually, we're going to stop right here at the end of the first act. You're going to be the second act. And we sent audiences of 500 people out in groups of 20 all over the theater, dressing rooms, director's offices, out on the lawn for focused and facilitated conversations to really talk about, well, you know, what are you going to do about this? And do you feel any proximity whatsoever to this issue? You know, does this have anything to do with you? And to think of almost your life on a big map, how far are you from a prison or someone who's going to go there or a kid who doesn't have a chance? And so it's really about trying to activate not just a individual awareness, but a civic awareness about the, about the matter. How did the audience react to that, to having to be the second act of the play? Uh, there were people who I assume, you know, uh, might have thought, well, this isn't what I came for. You know, I thought I was going to see Gloria Acolytus, whatever. <laughs> um, but I think actually the experience was most powerful for the facilitators themselves yeah. when you think about it, that they're meeting their community. You know, a, a play runs for about a month that you get you know, seven times a week to hear from a group of people in your community how they think about this, how they feel about this. I think it was powerful, very powerful, and a very, very, very emotional experience for those facilitators. And I believe there's a lot of was a lot of potential in the facilitators themselves when people say, you know, what's the takeaway? I don't believe in takeaways. I believe people bring something. And I like to think about what I left behind, which is a little bit different than a takeaway. Mm -hmm. So to leave behind facilitators who have had a very powerful experience may be able to make a difference, a concrete difference in the communities around them. My particular commitment has always been to try to use the theater and my art as a convening place where people can reconsider things in a way that they can in courtrooms, that they can in churches, and they certainly can't alone sitting in their living room. That, my friend, is why I love the theater. <laughs> that right there. You can think things sitting in the dark, watching a play that you won't give yourself the time and the space to do when you're staring at your phone at the dinner table or you're on the train and there's all these other things. Theater lets you think deep thoughts. I think, too, there's just something so magical about the space Anna's occupying in terms of embracing nuance, right? And the idea that there it's all gray area. Like, there is no black and white. It's just all super confusing and intense. And so maybe we should all sit together in a dark room and think about it. With some nice cello. <laughs> the cello helps the thinking. <laughs> you can make that happen. Coming up, more about why Anna DeVere Smith does the work that she does. Plus, Trisha makes a West Wing reboot campaign pitch. Hashtag Nancy McNally for president. <laughs> That's a long hashtag. It's worth every character <laughs> and okay. more. Okay. I'm not going to argue with you about it. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
Anna, I want to go back to your early days of figuring out that you had a hunger for storytelling and a talent for impressions. What are some of the first moments you remember being captivated by someone telling you a story? Well, for as long as I can remember, I was captivated by people telling me stories. In my youth, I do remember being not just a listener, but a watcher. People were always telling me to stop staring. I was always very, very fascinated, particularly with people who were very different from me. And, you know, people like when I did go to an integrated school, my my elementary school was all, all black children, what we called Negroes and colored people at the time. And then... I went to junior high in a place that was predominantly white, and uh, I was very fascinated by everybody who wasn't like me. So I've always had an interest in looking at and in hearing, and I think the older people around me knew that. My paternal grandfather loved to sit and talk to me. We spent a lot of time together, and my maternal grandmother, the same thing. And the lady next door, Miss Johnson, who weighed about 400 pounds, so she couldn't go very far, would always want me to come over and scratch her back and listen to stories and send me down the street to buy fat back for her. I mean, so as a young person, older people, by that I mean adults in particular, knew that I was a good listener. And then, you know, I think I got that reputation when I was in school and stuff as somebody that people would talk to and tell their problems to. I don't remember when I first started consciously being able to mimic or do impressions. I do remember that one of the things about it that was satisfying to me was that it was kind of the only way I got attention because Mm. I was a chubby child, a fat child, but I was really good at talking or learning Line. So inevitably in school assemblies or stuff, I'd have to go out and recite something. And, you know, kids can be pretty mean. They'd all laugh because I was fat and stuff. But the minute I'd open my mouth, they stopped laughing. So I started to get, you know, on some kind of level, this awareness that there was a power in whatever came out of my mouth. Yeah. What would you say are the biggest questions, most persistent questions that drive you in your work? Well, I'm very interested in catastrophe uh, because I am a dramatist and because I do think that in catastrophe, people become incredibly creative. Um, I went to Rwanda 10 years after the genocide, went to South Africa when that country was in the throes of the AIDS epidemic and a president who was denying that AIDS was what it was. I went you know, to uh, New Orleans right after Katrina. And I I find those moments that some people think are, oh, my God, that's so heavy. How can you do that? Blah. I find those types of moments actually f- full of hope and promise uh, because people have to become creative in order to survive. And so... It's um, a little like that beautiful Mr. Rogers quote about looking for the helpers. I say, oh, that, well, Wow. When I was a boy and I would hear about something scary, somebody getting badly hurt or something like that, I'd ask my parents or my grandparents about it. And they would usually tell me how they felt about it. In fact, my mother would try to find out who was helping the person who got hurt. Always look for the people who are helping, she'd tell us. That's very interesting because I look for the walkers. Mm. You know, I look for the people who are willing to walk with that which we would like to distance from ourselves. And I met a lot of walkers while I was writing 
notes from the field. One of them would be someone I have already evoked, um, you know, Abby Abenante, uh, the chief judge of the Yurok tribe, is someone who sticks with her people if they, even if they go back to jail. You know, she's, she sees herself as someone who's trying to raise people to a level of responsibility rather than someone who's sitting in judgment and prepared to punish. Or even Kevin Moore, who um, is the one who videoed uh, the beating of Freddie Gray, is someone who himself has been incarcerated but is always there to help somebody in his community. So I think that the walkers are very important, the people who will walk with those who many of us want to turn our eyes away from. Is there any particular community or group of people whose stories you'd like to tell with your process but you haven't been able to yet? I I don't know what would be next. I do think that the matter of mental health is something that has always seemed like a likely environment for me. Uh, I was in the spring and summer at the Department of Psychiatry at the Stanford School of Medicine and, um, you know, got to know those people, um, those professors and doctors there. I do think um, as Vivek Murthy, who is, uh, was a Surgeon General of the United States, said he went around America when he first became Surgeon General and met a lot of people, a lot of communities, and came away with the conclusion that America is a country in pain, not just physical pain, but emotional pain. And because my profession relies on emotions, you know, there could be something there. I'm not sure. Um, but, hey, maybe it's time for me to write a, the book for a musical. <laughs> maybe it's time for me to just take another direction. I am very excited that um, we just finished wrapping a new Shonda Rhimes show for the people, which will be on the air on March 13th. Excellent. Um, and every once in a while I get to be Rainbow's mom on Blackish. So, you know, I also love being in other people's work. So uh, who knows? Who knows? Well, can I begin what will be a polite but impassioned public campaign for the West Wing reboot to be Nancy McNally as president? Oh, oh, well, that's are you really going to be the CEO of that campaign? I mean, I'm let me tell you, Anna, I am one of those people when it comes to the West Wing. I have seen it many, <laughs> many, many times. And you are one of my favorite characters. And when Aaron Sorkin said that he would be interested in bringing the show back and he mentioned Sterling K. Brown as president, which I think is also a lovely notion. I immediately, with my group of friends, started quietly petitioning that you be president. And so if you're interested, I will take this Twitter mantle and I, make it my life. It's work. yours. I mean, you're making my day now. No, I loved being on the West Wing. I think both in terms of the canon that is West Wing, it makes great sense for Nancy McNally to now be president in that storyline. Nancy McNally is one of those characters who just took no guff <laughs> from anyone. And so I think that... Seeing her rise in that fictional universe is something that audiences would be game for right now. Well, CJ did a pretty good job. CJ held her own as well, yes. And so did, uh, so did Abby Bartlett. Yeah, there were, there were many strong women in that show. But I think only one who should be president now, and that is... Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> Nancy McNally for president is the hashtag it is happening are you sure you don't want it to just be hashtag nancy for president i feel like that's a little little tighter no there's too many other nancy's i want it to be very clear what other nancy's are there drew <laughs> nancy drew maybe i'll start nancy drew for president 
How dare you? I mean, I don't want to be in competition with Nancy McNally, obviously. Coming up in just a minute, <laughs> homework from Anna Devere Smith. And now, homework. Homework is one of our favorite things because nerds, which is why we like to ask our guests to assign all of us something to read, watch, listen to, or do. I see two pieces of homework. One is to write a letter to a kid who's in juvenile hall. That's one thing. And two, I would say to make a map of where you live and what you do. Where, Where do you go every day on your map and in what proximity is your map either to a prison or a very poor neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I think in Chicago that is a doable exercise because I believe that one way out of what we're in right now is proximity, is to try to make yourself proximate to the matter if you really want to have, if you really want to work on a better America. I have a friend who's an attractive white male who has been going out to Rikers to visit a young man in his early 20s who's there charged with murder. And my friend Brian tells me that when he goes out there, he goes out twice a month. He is the only white person to be seen anywhere, on the bus, inside the visiting area. And he talked about coming back one day and this very colorful black woman who had obviously been many times to go visit a variety of people, he got on the bus to go home and she said, you, 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 come sit by me. And I think that ought to be our objective. You know, go sit by somebody, go walk with somebody. I like it that you evoked uh, Mr. Rogers. I ran into a great documentary filmmaker. He actually made that wonderful documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom, about backup singers. And I ran into him in a hotel in L.A. I said, oh, you know, what are you doing? And he said, I'm, I'm making a documentary about Mr. Rogers. I said, Mr. Rogers? And he said, yeah, radical kindness. Yeah. To me, that's what it's about right now. Um, I'll just leave you with this. With the Pipeline Project, I sort of drew out for you about how, you know, we would ask the audience to go away and talk about it. One of the big things we talked about was radical welcome, a radical hospitality. And I've been trying to use my work in art as a form of that radical welcome, whether it's me sitting down with somebody in a prison or or in the middle of a Baltimore, Maryland after a riot, or whether it's how we think about our audience coming in to the theater. And so I think it's time for these kinds of radical behavior now, radical welcome, radical kindness, radical hospitality. Anna Devere Smith, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Thank you. I like radical kindness and hospitality as a follow-up to being aggressively delightful. It is perfect, actually. And you know what else I would like to recommend in addition to or partnering with the idea of radical kindness is go watch some Mr. Rogers videos. I did that the other day and ended up just crying for a while because they're just so lovely. Radical kindness. Yeah, man. 
This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banizak, and our intern is Stefania Gomez. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. You know what else is super helpful is if you leave us some stars on Apple Podcasts. Many thanks to, a, do you think it's acne or a knee 210? A knee, a singular knee. A knee, just the one knee 210? Just the one knee. Well, thank you very much, One Knee 210. Maybe your other knee will give us a nice review, too. Do you think they have separate iTunes accounts for their both of their Each knees? Each of the knees? I don't know. I mean, another knee 210? Think about it. Think about it. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast. I love how skeptical you are of it. We also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for at our website, wbez.org slash nerdette. I'm going to put some Fred Rogers videos in there for you. What am I going to put in there this week? I will put in the newsletter this week the Studs Terkel performance where Anna Devere Smith plays Studs in the TED Talk she did yes. because we only heard a little bit of it and I want you to hear the whole thing. The whole thing. Anna Devere Smith as Studs Terkel is just everything. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Do it. Huh? Hey, next mm-hmm. week it's happening. Mm-hmm. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.